my childhood on Palm Sunday, receiving palm branches. Anybody ever have that happen to them at church? Get palm branches handed out? I had no idea what the palm branches were really all about, but I thought it was pretty cool because I, you know, palms don't grow around here and you get to have a palm branch in your room and I kind of would keep it on the dresser for a while and look at it and after a few months it would disappear somewhere and I'd lose it and then next year we'd get another one. I remember also being, um, being reminded of how important it was to be a child because somehow Palm Sunday was about kids. They got the kids involved in the church that we were in, and, and, uh, and it was, you know, they mentioned the verses about Jesus not refusing the little children, and the little children sang, and, and all these references to children. So those are, those are my two memories that I have of Palm Sunday, um, and really had no clue what Palm Sunday was really all about. Why did Jesus ride on a donkey? That's strange. Why were branches thrown out into the street in front of him? That's strange. Why did people take their coats off and throw them down on the streets? Don't know. It just happened, and so we talk about it. And we celebrate it. Kind of off on a different tangent here. Isn't it amazing how many people will party over anything? <laughs> the sun came up. Let's party. It's Halloween, let's party. It's Christmas, let's party. It's New Year's, let's party. Let's party, 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 party. You know? So it's Palm Sunday. We lose the meaning of what this is all about. And so what I'm going to do this morning is somewhat of a history lesson. So I guess you can buckle your seatbelts in a different fashion than last week. I'm not really nervous about presenting what I'm going to present this week like I was last week. But um, it really was great in, in my life this past week or two to dig into the history, the biblical history of what led up to the, um, the triumphal entry, as we call it, of Jesus into Jerusalem when he rode on the donkey and what that was really all about and why it's so important even to us today. We read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. Each of the Gospels does contain an account of the triumphal entry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I'd like to read the other three with you right now just so we can get a composite picture of how the Gospels present this event. Some of the events or some of the Gospels have details that the others don't have. Um, so I'd like you to turn with me to uh, Matthew chapter 21 and begin by just reading and absorbing what happened in that event. Matthew 21, verses 1 through 11. Much of this is going to be almost identical to what you read in Mark, and Luke will be as well, but look for the differences. Look for the, the details that maybe one had and the other didn't. When they had approached Jerusalem and had come to Bethphage, the, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says something to you, you shall say, the Lord has need of them, and immediately he will send them. Now this took place that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, and this is a quote from Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10, which we're going to look at a little bit later. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them, and brought the donkey and the colt and laid on them their garments on which he sat. And most of the multitudes spread their garments in the road, and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. And the multitudes going before him and those who, were followed, who followed after were crying out, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he had entered Jerusalem, all the city was stirred. We'll come back to that, saying, who is this? And the multitudes were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. Turn next to Luke chapter 19. This is Luke's account of this same event. Verses 28 through 44.
Luke 19, 28. And after he had said these things, he was going on ahead, ascending to Jerusalem. And that was literally true. Jerusalem's up high. Um, very high, actually. And as you go up, you can't get to Jerusalem without climbing. You go up and up and up, and, and it's quite a view from there. And it came about when he had approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village opposite you, in which, as you enter, you will find a colt tied, on which no one yet has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Thus you shall speak. The Lord has need of it. And those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their garments on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their garments in the road. And as he was now approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen. And we're going to see in a minute uh, when we read from the account in John, does anybody know what the miracle immediately prior to this was? In John chapter 11, it was the raising of Lazarus. He had raised a man from the dead and this was the very next event that happened after the raising of Lazarus. So they had seen, uh, they, were, they were shouting joyfully, praising God with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the multitude said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered and said, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. And when he approached it, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days shall come upon you when your enemies will throw up a bank before you and surround you and hem you in on every side and will level you to the ground and your children within you. Oh, wait a minute. This is what Jesus said on the triumphal entry day? level you to the ground and your children within you and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the day or the time of your visitation. Keep that in mind too. John chapter 12. Verses 9 through 19. The great multitude, therefore, of the Jews learned that he was there, and they came, not for Jesus' sake only, but that they might also see Lazarus. So you get a little bit more information here why the crowd was coming. It was to see Jesus, but there was, a, there was another motivation there as well. They wanted to see the man who had been raised from the dead. They wanted to see Lazarus, whom he raised from the dead. But the chief priests took counsel that they might put Lazarus to death also. Because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. And they didn't want to have any part of that. So on the next day, the great multitudes who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign the Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. It's a lot of information. I'm not going to go verse by verse through all of these um, accounts of the triumphal entry, but what I'd like us to do is to, to really back up 
in history. And take a look at kind of an overview of biblical prophecy as it relates to this event. Here we're talking about a king. Why did the people come out? Why were they expecting a king in the first place? What was this king supposed to do? What was the kingdom all about? Jesus had been preaching since he started his ministry. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He preached that he was a king. When Pilate asked him, are you the king? When he was standing before him and they were ready to put him to death, he said, you have said, rightly you have said, I am the king. But my kingdom is not of this world. It was a different kingdom. It was a different kind of kingdom. And it was not what they were expecting. And we'll get into that as we go through. I'd like us to kind of reverse a little bit and go back in time. I want you to turn to Psalm 103 and just make a couple of statements about God himself. When we talk about the king, we don't have a king in America. We have a president. I suppose if we lived in Britain, it would be a little easier to understand what a king was all about or a country that has a monarchy. Um, But I think even not living in a monarchy, we understand what we mean by a king. He's the boss. There is no one higher. He represents the government of a particular country. His word is law. This is the king. And in in a general sense and in a very true sense, when you look at Psalm 103, verse 19, who is the king? The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. In a very general but true sense, God has always been, still is, and always will be the king. There's no one higher than him. We are all subjects of the king one way or another. We either give our obedience to him and our love to him, or else we will be judged by him in the end. There is no escaping being with the king. Jesus Christ is the one to whom every knee will bow, both in heaven and on earth. There is no escaping you giving an account of your life to the king. We all will. And no matter what we believe about the the triumphal entry or the kingdom or how it relates to us today, in in this sense, God has always been and will always be the king of everything. He is sovereign. He is Lord, and his throne is established in the heavens. It will never be overthrown. There is no other king. There is no one higher to whom you can appeal. God is the highest. Turn to Psalm 145, verses 11 through 13. Again, speaking of the Lord himself, it says, They shall speak of the glory of thy kingdom and talk of thy power. To make known to the sons of men thy mighty acts and the glory of the majesty of thy kingdom. Thy kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and thy dominion endures throughout all generations, including today. We may look around at society and think that God has lost his kingdom, but that is not true. God still is on his throne, which is established in the heavens, and his kingdom will remain throughout all generations, including this one, including the next one, and the next one. And into eternity, God will always be the king. Now, God has revealed some very specific things about his kingdom as we go through the Old Testament. It begins, actually, in Genesis chapter 3. And I'd like us to to go back and start there. We know that in the history of the world, God made Adam and Eve first. That they were made by him. And when they were made, God pronounced that everything that he had made was very good, including them. We look around today at ourselves and we say, well, we aren't good. We lie to each other. We cheat. We're selfish. We kill each other. We have war. We do all these things. We're not good. So something happened between that time and this time, obviously. And it's recorded for us in Genesis chapter 3, where the serpent came to Eve and tempted her to disobey God by eating 
of the fruit of the tree that he had told them not to eat. And then Adam took of the fruit, and he ate of it, and they sinned. They disobeyed God. We know this as original sin. We know it as the first sin. This is what plummeted the entire race into sin. And everybody who's been born since has been born in sin. And so when this happened, God spoke to Adam and and both Adam and Eve afterwards and basically judged them, put a curse on them and on the earth because of their sin. But when he spoke to the serpent in verses uh, 14 and 15, he said something very interesting, and it's where we're going to begin our understanding of this whole thing that leads up to the triumphal entry in Jerusalem. He says in verse 14 to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. And then in this next verse, he he puts his words into the future tense and talks about something that has not yet happened. At least it hadn't happened then. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. Now, I know that women don't like snakes very much, usually. And you could say, well, I put enmity between you and the woman. True. You know, that's a a general fact. I don't like snakes very much either. If there was one in here, we'd probably all jump up and run and scream and make a big scene and all of that, and that's true. We, we don't get along well with this particular animal, and that's part of the curse that God put on that animal because of what he had done, representative of Satan, of course. But, but when he talks about the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, he's now looking down into the future, into future ages, and he says that there's going to be a battle between these two seeds, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, and the seed of the serpent is going to strike out and hit the seed of the woman where? In the heel. The seed of the woman is going to strike out and hit the seed of the serpent where? In the head. So if you get hit in the head, you take a head shot, you're dead. It's a kill shot. It's victory. And that's what he's talking about. Somewhere down the road, this is the first little inkling that God, as king, has has provided a way for redemption to happen for mankind, for you and for me. And it's going to happen through the seed of the serpent striking a blow at the seed of the woman, but not a killing blow. But the seed of the woman is going to strike a killing blow at the seed of the serpent. There will be total victory in the future. The promise that started here begins to unfold specifically in Genesis chapter 12. This promise of victory, how are we going to gain victory over sin and death? How's that possible when Satan has such control and a bind over this world and over us? We're we're locked in sin. We can't get out of sin on our own. How are we going to be redeemed and get back to God? Where's this victory going to come from? Genesis chapter 12, God in his sovereignty now chooses a man named Abram. Why did he choose Abram? I don't know. God's sovereign. He chose Abram to do this. He picked him out of all the people that happened to be living at the time and said, I want you to move from where you are over to here. And I'm going to do something through you that I have not done through anybody else in history. And the Lord said to Abram in Genesis 12, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless all those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, and here's another future promise that God is making. This is something that had not happened yet, but it's in the future. He says, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Something good, blessing itself, is going to come through this man, a descendant of this man. From him would come a nation of people, and through that nation, and specifically through some people we're going to look at in a minute, 
God was going to provide blessing for all the families of the earth. Is that true? Are you blessed today because you're a Christian? Well, who was Jesus Christ? Was he not a descendant of Abraham? Absolutely, he was. He was a physical descendant of Abraham. And we'll see that as we go on. So we have this promise. The promise is repeated in chapter 13, chapter 15, chapter 17, and chapter 22 of Genesis. And you can read the promise and the reiteration of it. There was land involved. Obviously, this was the beginnings of the nation of Israel. And God was going to use that nation and bless that nation. And they were going to be his people. And he would be their king. And And we'll read about that. So the promise that God initiated in Genesis chapter 3 is now honed a little bit, made a little bit more narrow, and he's showing how he's going to do it through Abraham. Go to Genesis 15. He narrows it again. You know the account. Abraham and Sarah grew old. They were worried because Sarah didn't think she was going to be able to have children, and so they made another plan. They gave Hagar to Abram, and said, why don't you have a son by her instead? So he did. And Ishmael was born. But Ishmael was not the son of promise. It was not the one through whom God was going to bring this blessing to the families of the earth. In verse 4 of chapter 15, he says, Then, behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, speaking of Ishmael, will not be your heir. But the one who shall come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And so he just told him flat out, it's it's." It's your son. It's Isaac. Isaac is the one through whom the promise is going to come. Isaac then grows, marries, and he has two sons. You know their names. Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older of the twins. And Esau, by right, should have received both the birthright and the blessing from Isaac. He was the firstborn. But God, again, in his sovereignty, chose Jacob. Why did he choose Jacob over Esau? I don't know. Romans chapter 9, verse 13 says, Before either of the boys were born and and had any opportunity to do good or evil, God chose the, the younger to rule over the older, or the older to serve the younger. It was God's choice. And so we have the promise given in Genesis chapter 3. It narrows. Now it's going to come through Abraham. It's not going to come through Ishmael. It's going to come through Isaac. It's not going to come through Esau. It's going to come through Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. Any of the kids in Sunday school could probably name them all. I can't. And if I tried, I wouldn't be able to do it. I could probably name most of them if I tried to do it, but I'm not going to embarrass myself this morning. They became the 12 tribes of Israel. One of them was, again, the son of promise. And if you turn to Genesis chapter 49, and here something interesting is added to the promise. So far, God has just said that blessing is going to come, and it's going to come through these people. And he names who the people are. In Genesis 49, he adds another piece of the puzzle of how this is going to happen. And he says in 49 verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. Judah was one of the sons of Jacob. And Judah became the family, the tribe of Israel, through whom the kings would come. All of the kings of Israel, and even in the divided kingdom between Israel and Judah, were all descendants of this man, Judah. And that's important. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. Until the peaceful times come. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Okay? So just kind of follow the flow here. From the beginning, God promised blessing, redemption, a killing blow to Satan, which is representative of death and sin and judgment. And then that promise flows into a man named Abraham. It flows to his son Isaac. It flows to his son Jacob. And it flows to his son Judah, through whom would come a king. A king that would provide the means to that blessing sometime in the future. 
If you turn to Exodus chapter 19, verses 4 through 6. God's original intent from the beginning of time was for him to be the king. He is the king. He wants to be your king. He is your king. And if you read Exodus chapter 19, verse 4, you'll find that this is exactly as God enters into a covenant with his people. This is right before the Ten Commandments were given on Mount Sinai. And God spoke through Moses to the people and gave them his moral law and what they ought to be doing. He says, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Israel was God's people. They were his kingdom, and he was their king. And as you go on through Old Testament history, that's exactly what happened. God led them through the wilderness. God led them across the Jordan River into the promised land. God led them and helped fight their enemies until... A sad event happened, yet once again, in the, in the nation of Israel. And this is in 1 Samuel chapter 8, if you turn there. This is all driving toward a point, so bear with the history for a bit. Up until this point... There was no physical king in Israel. God was their king. You go through the book of Judges, the book of Joshua, God was leading them himself. And at this point in their history, Israel made a shift in what they wanted and what they demanded in a king. They no longer wanted God as their king. They wanted a man to be their king. And if you read in verses 4 through 8, it says, All the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel, at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you're old. We don't want you anymore. Your sons don't walk in your ways. Give us a king instead. Samuel was God's representative to them. He was their prophet. He was their priest. He was the man through whom they received instruction from God, and they said, We don't want you. We don't want you. Appoint us a king for us to judge us like all the other nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. And this, again, is just the awesome sovereign plan of God coming together. Because what they did was wrong, and God says so here. He says, they have not rejected you. Who have they rejected? They have rejected me from being king over them. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, that they have forsaken me and they have served other gods, so they are doing to you also. But God had a plan through all of this. And as the kings were established, the first king of Israel was Saul. He was the one they chose. He, he stood head and shoulders above everybody else. He was a good-looking man. He was strong. But he, in the end, failed miserably as the king. And the man to whom uh, God gave the next king after Saul was David. David becomes a very prominent and important figure in the history of Israel. His name is mentioned in the New Testament many, many times. You heard it this morning as we read. Right? The king, the son of David. David's kingdom was mentioned in one of the passages that we, that we read. So I'd like you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. What are all these references to David about? So things are narrowing again. God's promise narrowed through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and now they're narrowing once more through this man, David. Verse 8, 
Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the, sh the sheep, that you should be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed. Nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares that to you that the Lord will make a house for you. And when your days are complete, and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you. Now, who was the descendant of David? I hear the S's. Solomon. Solomon was his son. But think carefully with, about this. I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And how long will his kingdom last? Forever? Where is Solomon's throne today? Tell me. This was not speaking about Solomon. It was, in a sense, speaking about Solomon, but there was something greater being spoken of here. A descendant of David would come, and God would establish his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, now this is back talking about Solomon, I will correct him with the rod of men and with the, and with the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. And your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. So once again, God is narrowing the focus of of the redemptive promise that he's making about his kingship and his kingdom, it's going to come through David. A descendant of David would sit on the throne, and his throne will be established forever. So who is this king? Who is this one that's coming? Who is this one that's going to provide blessing for all the families of the earth? The one that's going to come through Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. And what's he going to do when he gets here? They were looking for a king. They were looking for a king, an important king, the one that would fulfill all of these prophecies. And what does the Bible say about him and his kingdom? Let's just kind of rapid fire go through here. Uh, if you don't want to turn, you can just listen. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. Listen carefully about this king. Numbers 24, 17, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter shall rise from Israel, a king. And what's he going to do? He's going to crush the forehead of Moab and tear down all the sons of Sheth, and Edom shall be a possession. Seir, its enemies, shall also be a possession, while Israel performs valiantly. This king is going to give them victory, crushing their enemies. Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 through 9. Who will this king be? But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, Thou art my son. Today I have begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as thine inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as thy possession. Thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Shatter them like earthenware. So this king would have a relationship to God as a son has with his father. Thou shalt be a son to me, and he shall, once again, destroy the enemies. Shatter them like a, like a glass falling down and shattering into pieces. Look at Psalm 45. Verses 1 through 6. My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the sons of men. Grace is poured upon thy lips. Therefore God has blessed thee forever. 
Gird the sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in thy splendor and thy majesty, and in thy majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let thy hand teach thee awesome things. Your arrows are sharp. The people fall under thee. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of thy kingdom. So again, he's talking about the sword, the arrows, one who would come and reign and rule in righteousness, but he would be a military might to behold. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and 7, we read these during Christmas time. A child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Who was coming? It was a king. You want to turn to it. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 5 and 6 talk about Israel dwelling securely under the kingship of this king. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 talks once again about the everlasting nature of the kingdom of this king. Micah chapter 5, verse 2, again, we talk about this at Christmas time, talks about one who would come out of Bethlehem, the, the smallest of the, of the nations, and, and once again describes this king as one who was a conqueror one who would come and would defeat the enemies. And the last one, Zechariah 9.9. Let's turn there. And there's a lot more verses than what I'm sharing with you. These are kind of a sampling of prophecies about the king that's coming. Chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, and the bow of war will be cut off, and he will speak peace to the nations, and his dominion will be from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth." What were they expecting when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that donkey? Their enemies had been many over the years. Who was their enemy currently? Rome. Rome had entered into Jerusalem and had completely taken over. Their army was sweeping across most of the known world then. They would go in and they would, their army would devastate any military might that those, that those countries would have, and then they would just take residence in the country. They'd take over. Why do you think Pilate was there? He was the governor that came from Rome. He was keeping the peace in Jerusalem at the time because Judah and that whole region was now under the control of Rome. And Israel, like any other country, was longing to be free of the tyranny of these Roman emperors. They had to pay taxes. That's how, that's how Rome did it. They went with military might. They conquered the army. They put their governors there and said, pay us. You can, you can live here. You can do whatever you want, but your money is coming to us. And Rome became fat and big and powerful. And they were the enemy. What were they expecting when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the, on the colt of a donkey, the foal of a donkey, exactly as had been predicted? Don't you think they were going to expect that Jesus was going to march into Jerusalem, knock on Pilate's door, and said, hey, you, out. I'm here now. You can go home. You're done. I am the rightful king. Herod is not the king. Caesar is not the king. I am the king. Your armies have, and couldn't he have done that? Who is the king of all the universe? Who owns the cattle on a thousand hill? Hills. Who has all the money? Who has all the power, if you will? Is it not God? 
His throne is established in heaven forever. But Jesus did not come with an army, did he? Who did he come with? Fishermen? The people who had gathered to receive him, they didn't have swords in their hands. What did they have in their hands? Palm branches. What would you have expected if this king was coming? Trumpets should have been blowing. A palace should have been built. An army should have been ready to receive him. Bodyguards, regalia. Even in our society, we have ceremony for things, don't we? Somebody gets married, we have, we have a ceremony. There's, there's, there's important things that go on. There's, there's clothing to be worn. There's flowers to be put everywhere. You know. Somebody gets installed as a, a governor or a president. There's at least an inauguration and, and a, a party of sorts, a ceremony swearing him in that he's now the president. Give your allegiance to him. Even when our sports teams win, we celebrate. What happened here? He didn't ride in on a horse or an elephant. He rode in, not even on a donkey. If you read it carefully, he rode in on the donkey's little donkey that had never been ridden before. And Jesus didn't even own it. He borrowed it. When he came into Jerusalem, he had already proved that he was the Messiah, and he is the Messiah. What did he do to prove it? He had all the credentials. You go back to Matthew chapter 1. He was born through the seed of Abraham. He came through the seed of Judah. He came through the seed of David, and he was the one that they were waiting for. It's true. He is the king. He is, he is the one. He came to establish his kingdom. Where was he born? Bethlehem. Was he born of a virgin? Yep, just like Isaiah said he would be. Was he the son of God? Just like Psalm 2 said he would be. Everything he did pointed to the fact that he was the fulfillment of all of the prophecy in the Old Testament. He provided the necessary validation by showing his power. Everybody who was sick came to him. What did he do? He healed them. He had power over sickness, power over nature, power over the earth, power over death itself. The day before he walked into Jerusalem, he had risen somebody from the dead. He raised somebody from the dead and showed that power. And his entry into Jerusalem showed what kind of king he could have been. But he wasn't. He wasn't what they expected. Who could have stopped him? Nobody. He's the king over all creation. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He's the judge. Everybody's going to bow before him one day. And yet he rides in on a colt with clothes being thrown down in front of him and palm branches. He had the power to become their physical king. John 18, 6, when he said, I am, what happened to the soldiers? Whoop, they fell backwards. Matthew 26, 3, he said, I could call upon my father at any time, and he would send me legions of angels. And anybody who's ever even seen an angel in the New Testament or Old Testament, what happens to them? They fall over like dead men. We can't fight angels. If Jesus wanted to fight, he would have fought. But there was something more, something that they didn't see that was happening when he rode into Jerusalem. He showed them what kind of king he truly was. Who were his officials? The lowliest of men. The poorest person who comes to Christ becomes the greatest in his kingdom. For he taught them that the least should be the greatest. Riches, wealth, money, power. Jesus made fish and bread and fed 5,000 people. What kind of power is that? He could have had all the money he wanted. And yet, how much did he have? None. Everything he had came from the goodwill offerings of people around him. He never owned property. He never owned a house. 
And yet here's the king who should have had a palace of his own. Here rides Christ, the king, the highest in his kingdom, the first, the prince. But there were no banners, there were no trumpets, there was no gold, no ivory. And there was no army of any kind. Not a bit. There were no bodies laying around, no blood, no devastation, no burnt cities, no war. There was no ceremony. There were no taxes in his kingdom. In fact, he got the, the coin out of the fish's mouth to pay to Caesar, right? Oh, he could make money. No fees. And every kind of creature was even considered. You ever wonder why he sat on the foal instead of the donkey? And when he sat on the foal and came in, the donkey came with him, didn't he? I don't know that this is true, but it says in Isaiah that the lion shall lie down with the lamb. The little boy shall play with the asp. And when his kingdom comes, even the animal kingdom will be made right again. And honestly, I think he had the mother come because he didn't want to take the colt away from his mother. And he was just showing grace even to the animals at the time. And to bring this to a close, the entry into Jerusalem brought people face to face with the true king. And they all responded in one way or another, and so must we. What do you think? Who was this Jesus who had been prophesied to come and conquer the nations? And yet he comes in riding on a donkey, on a colt, and not many hours from then was going to be executed and nailed to a cross. Some people were moved with contempt. Look at that fool calling himself the king. We heard that many, many times. Some were moved with unbelief. If that's the king, that's not the king I want. The very people who were there shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of, of the Lord. What did they shout the next day? Crucify him. It's not what we wanted. It's not what we expected. Some were moved with curiosity. You, you, you heard it, the question, who is that man? Who is he really? What is he doing? Some were moved with envy. The Pharisees, both times, they tried to put Lazarus to death. They wanted to put Jesus to death because the Jews were following him. They didn't want Jews following him. They wanted Jews following them. They didn't want him to be their king. They wanted him killed. They were moving, he was moving in on their territory. And yet some were moved with joy, true joy, because they knew what was happening. This was the Messiah, but the Messiah had to suffer and die. He had to, to pay for your sin and my sin. This was the ultimate plan of God. So are all the prophecies in the Old Testament now no longer valid? No, I still think they're coming. I think when Jesus comes back the second time, you're going to see it a little differently than when he came the first time. He will come back as a conquering king. And in fact, Revelation, if you read it carefully, talks about battles and fighting and, and Jesus Christ will be the general, so to speak, of that army who comes from heaven and wipes out the enemies on the earth. And in that day, all of the things that are prophesied about him will be completely fulfilled. But where are we today? The kingdom of God has begun, people, and we're in it. God is the rightful king. This life that we live, these 70 or 80 years, that's just a little bit. Jesus Christ is building his church. Every time you preach the gospel to somebody and they respond by repenting of their sin and coming to Jesus Christ as their savior, another subject has entered into that kingdom. The kingdom will be ruled in righteousness. How do we gain righteousness? It's through Christ who died for us and shed his blood like we just talked about in communion. Wherever it's preached, the gospel will cause a stir. Jesus finished his trip to Jerusalem by fulfilling the will of God that he should die. And the reason for his entry into Jerusalem was to be the sacrifice for your sin. That's why he went. The victories will come later, the physical victories. He came to send a crushing blow to the head of the seed of the serpent. And that's exactly what he did on the cross. When you become saved, you can never become unsaved. No one can take that away from you. 
Satan cannot accuse you before God and have any standing because Christ paid for your sin. You're justified through him. He died in your place to provide for you what you and me, you and I, are not capable of providing for ourselves, to give us eternal life. So what are you going to do in the face of the gospel? Moved with contempt? Look at those fools. Moved with unbelief? Well, if that's the king, I don't want anything to do with him. Moved with curiosity? Hmm, hadn't really thought about this before. Who is that man? Need to investigate further. Moved with envy? No, I don't want Christ. If Christ is going to take over my life, I like my life the way it is. Don't move in on my territory, Jesus. Or are you moved with joy? I have found Christ. I have found the truth. I am a part of a kingdom that is established forever. And when I die, I'm going to be there in that kingdom as a subject of that king, serving with that king forever and ever and ever. That is the hope of a Christian. And it was because of Jesus who rode into Jerusalem on that donkey and gave his life on the cross and shed his blood for you and me. I hope you're moved with joy. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the fact that you have given us the entire revelation of God. And Lord, we thank you for Jesus Christ, your son, the king, the alpha and the omega, who is the, the rightful king and who sits even at your right hand today. We look forward to your return. We look forward to seeing you face to face. In the meantime, Lord, I pray that we would be faithful subjects, for we know that we are a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood, saved by you, indwelt by your spirit, and moved to live in righteousness and meekness and gentleness and love in this life, showing what the true kingdom is really all about. Father, I thank you for these... Um, these words that are in the New Testament, and I pray that even as we contemplate them this week, as we think about the events that took place, help us, Lord, to make application to our own lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen.